This is a testing. I had to guess where to set it. If you want to stay awake, travel will leave it there, but testing, testing, testing. They need it on the, on the snooze level. <laughs> testing, testing, testing. I think that's where the guys have it marked back there. Okay, good to see everyone this morning. We had a good time at the Trout Fest with the car wash and some of the guys played ball and, and uh, a lot of chance to visit with a lot of people and so pray for, continue to pray for our, our desire to reach our community for Christ. That should be foremost in our prayers and all that we do is to keep in mind that we're called to, to make disciples and to preach the gospel. So keep folks in your prayers. Also keep in mind that in um, over a month we'll be having our annual meeting, so once you want to bathe that in prayer as well as we seek the Lord's face in all that we do, and so keep that in your prayers. By the way, Genesis 28 will be our scripture reading and our text this morning. One other thing to mention is um, next week I, I will be missing in action, and uh, so all my, actually my brother-in-law Pete Tramick will be speaking for me, so pray for him and you can look forward to hearing from him next Sunday. Genesis 28, we were our text for our study this morning, beginning in verse 1, says this, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples. And give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Badan Aram, to Laban the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahathalab, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful today for your great mercy, Father. Truly, your, your mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. And Father, we thank you that in your mercy you've extended to us the gift of forgiveness. In your grace, you've given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins. Father, in your love for us, you continue to father us and watch over us in our daily lives. Thank you for the standing that we have in Christ. Thank you that you've blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. And thank you, Father, that, you, that we not only have a salvation which is which is eternal, but we have a salvation which is abundant, and we have a salvation which has purpose, Father. You have saved us to serve. You have saved us to influence others, to share and show the love of Christ to the world around us. And Father, we pray once again today, as we study your word, that you would prepare us, teach us of your love, of your goodness, of your grace. Take the things we learned today and incorporate them into our lives that we might reflect the person of Christ and all his grace and his love and his beauty and his wonder, that we might share his truth in, to the world around us, and that many others might come to know him. But Father, you are in the business of, of rescuing people, of saving people, of delivering them from eternal hell and delivering them from this present evil world, Father. And we have that message. And so embolden us today and equip us 
And Father, we pray today that you would quiet our hearts, help us to be alert and ready to be taught today, and may your spirit speak through your word the things we should learn. And so, Father, we give thanks for each one who's here today and trust you watch over our service together. May you be glorified in our worship, in our prayers, in our praise, our songs, in our study today, and in what we take home and allow you to incorporate into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in this chapter, we find some really some lessons for us, some life instructions for us seen in these two boys, Jacob and Esau. And in this passage, we see both are focused on taking a wife and finding a wife. Jacob being directed to take a wife from, from the family of Laban and Esau taking a wife from another arm of the family is choosing a godly wife, choosing a, a, a wife that would support their identity as God's chosen people rather than choosing an ungodly mate from the pagan nations around them. And that's what, it, that's what he tells us here in this section is that they were not to take... Jacob was not to take a wife, in verse 2, from the daughters of Canaan, representing the ungodly world, the godless world. And so what we find here is both are marrying right in this, in this section, aren't they? Jacob obeys and he goes to Laban's, and, and Esau chooses a wife from another arm of the family. And so we ask ourselves, and we consider these two portions in this short section of this chapter is what was their motivation as young men? What was their motivation? Why did they do that? Why did they choose wives from the, from the families they did? Well, first of all, for Jacob, the first one mentioned here, we find that this decision, this, this willingness to go and, and seek a wife, fell in the context as his identity as, as Jehovah, God's recipient of the covenant. He was God's man chosen to carry on the blessings of the co covenant promise made to Abraham. And we see here that Isaac passes that covenant privileges, the covenant responsibilities on here to Jacob. It's a promise made to Abraham back in chapter 12, was reaffirmed to Isaac, and here Isaac passes it on to Jacob as the one who would God would continue to fulfill these promises. And we see here the elements of this covenant reiterated here. We see that he is the, Jacob would be blessed by God. We see that he's to be the father of a nation. And he is to have the blessing of Abraham. And you might wonder, well, what's the blessing of Abraham? Well, if you go back to the original in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, verses 2 and 3 says this. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so there's several different facets of the blessing of that God gave to Abraham, the blessing that God was going to make Abraham, and the blessing that God was going to bring through Abraham, and so on. And that blessing was passed on here to Jacob. And fourthly here, we see in chapter 28, the inheritance of the promised land in, in verse 4. And this is really why Israel has a right to the land, a title to the land, because God gave it to them. He repeats it to all the patriarchs that this is their land. And it doesn't matter what any earthly government may say or any organization's opinion may be. It is, belongs to Israel because it's God's to give. God owns it, and he gives it to whom he chooses, and they have a right to the land, don't they? And so, in the context of this covenant promise, Jacob is going to, to choose a wife that will support 
his responsibility and his position as a, as a guardian, as a bearer of the covenant that God had given. He's going to support his identity and therefore his purpose in ministry for life. And that's very important, isn't it? And that's what we see here. And that's a good motivation, isn't it? Find one that's going to be on the same page, move in the same direction, have the same purposes, and support Jacob in that. And that's what he desired, to choose from a godly family. Now Esau, on the other hand, we jump down to verse 6. You have to question, is Esau doing the right thing? Or why is he, is he doing the right thing because it's right? Or why is he doing what he is doing? And yet we see in verse 6 that there is an indication that he, he had a, a more selfish motivation. Verse 6 says he saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob. And we recently studied how, how disappointed Esau was in missing the blessing. And he wanted his father to bless him. And that was important in those days because they believed that the blessing that God passed on through their fathers would, would be fulfilled in their lives. And he wanted that blessing. And that appears to be the choice he made here. Because in verses 6 and 7, we, he says that Esau noticed that. That, you know, Jacob was sent to a godly family to pick a godly wife. And that when he did, God gave him a blessing. So he correlated the two. He made the right choice. He, he made his father, was going to get a godly wife from the family, and the byproduct was, you know, a blessing goes with this. And he says, yeah, I can play that game. I can do that thing. And that appears to be his motivation here. Nothing about doing the right or wrong. It seems to be more selfishly motivated. And when you consider his history, because Esau did, you recognize that that was the nature of this person. Verse 8, it says, He saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father, and if you jump back to chapter 26, what well, we see at the end of the chapter, verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. He had taken wives already from the ungodly nations around him with no consideration of his godly heritage, of his godly identification, of God's will for his life. We find in, <coughs> excuse me, in chapter 27, verse 46, that Rebecca's displeased. She's weary of these ungodly women living in their household. And then, of course, we get to chapter 8. Isaac recognizes that his father is displeased as well. Excuse me while I try to prevent a blowout. So it appears here that Esau does the right thing, but maybe for the wrong reasons, selfish reasons. A desire to please his father so he could obtain a blessing. Nothing in here about what would God have me to do. This is the right thing to do. This will support my godly heritage. And we have to ask ourselves, was God pleased with that? Is God merely interested in the, in the fruit, in the, in, the, in the right thing, or is he interested in pure fruit that emanates from a pure heart? I'm reminded of 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, that says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God wants us to love one another, to, and love, love produces service and compassion and so on. But he wants it from a pure heart. He wants it to come from a good conscience and from sincere faith, which tells us God is <clears throat> it's not simply interested in the end. He's more interested in the means, is he not? And so just because we do the right thing doesn't mean that God is pleased before us because he desires a right heart before him. Yet how many Christians today do the right thing for the wrong reasons? Sometimes for recognition. 
Sometimes to leave an impression on others. Other times to somewhat appease others, you know, so they'll stay off my back and they won't know what I'm really like. Or sometimes for personal gain, sometimes to appease their own conscience so they don't feel guilty. I did my duty and I did this, that, or the other thing and now I feel good about myself. And in none of those things is there an attitude that simply says, Jesus, you're Lord of my life. I need to do what you would have me to do. I need my life, my lives need to be directed by the Lord. And, and, and I need to submit to your will in all things. And yet, sometimes, there's so many Christians today that appear, appear right, but inside, their hearts are far from God. And the more you study the Bible and observe modern Christianity, the more you realize how many Christians do not live in the realm of their spiritual reality or their identity in Christ. They don't walk in submission in a, to, to, to their Lord in a genuine faith, a walk of faith enjoying a daily relationship with Jesus Christ, whose hearts are wholeheartedly set on walking in the light of his word the Bible. Esau's move here might appear to be right, but it wasn't necessarily a spiritual one. Well, when you consider these two men, and even the, the original theme of this section, choosing a godly wife, some today, today would ask, what's the big deal? But let's see what the New Testament has to say about this. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians 6, a parallel passage that gives God's directives to New Testament believers today. And let's talk for a moment to what the New Testament says about marriage. And here in this passage, we find reasons for a believer to marry a believer and not to marry an unbeliever. Verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has he has a believer, excuse me, with an unbeliever. And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So the first reason we see here that on, this, on this same topic is the reason we don't is because, simply because God says so, doesn't he? God says so. Don't be unequally yoked. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. God says so. Don't do that. And we know for the Old Testament saints, they were told to yoke two animals of the same kind together when they would do work. You know, and an unequal yoke would be something like, you know, Matt and his dog spuds putting a husky and a chihuahua in the same harness. It just wouldn't work very well, would it? And that's the idea here. And, and, and he says, so first of all, God says don't do it, but then he gives us some reasons. There's some practical reasons here we find in, in this portion that says you're different people with different motivations and different worldview and different desires, and you, you walk according to a different playbook. And he describes it here in verse 14 and onwards. He says, what fellowship, because marriage is a fellowship, a sharing of life together, has righteousness with lawlessness. One has a righteous desire, and one has a lawless attitude towards life. What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with the devil? What part has he as a believer with an unbeliever? And, and he says, because of your, your difference in your worldview, your standards difference, your, your desires are different, where you walk is different, light versus darkness, and we have different fathers. One is the father, children of God, the other are considered children of this world system, of Satan's world. 
He says there's a, there's a complete difference, and they don't work. And we recognize in reality when an unbeliever and a believer get married, they have to find a common, common ground. And the unbeliever is never going to climb to the level of the believer. They can't. They're not, they're not saved. They're not Christians. They're not children of God. But the, but the believer can descend to the level of the unbeliever, can live on that plane, and that's the problem. Because they're so diametrically different in their lives that they, they have to find common ground. And that's often what happens, isn't it, in their lives. The second thing, the third thing he mentions here, not only because God said so, not only because of the practical reasons, if a, if a Christian wants to remain faithful to their God, the third thing is because of their identity. Verse 16 says, you're the temple of the living God. You have a new identity in Christ. Christ. God dwells in you and you in him and he's our God. We're his people. We have an identity as Christians, as Christ ones. And, and therefore, we are to do like Jacob did. Be willing to look for a mate, a partner, that would support our mission, our life's purpose, which is all wrapped up in our identity in Christ as Christians. I think there's one other reason here that's implied here. But if you'll turn with me over to 1 Kings chapter 11, we'll come back here if you want to put a marker here, but 1 Kings chapter 11, the reason God states in the, in the Old Testament is because of influence, because of the ungodly influence that will, that will result. And I go to this chapter because it talks about Solomon. And... Solomon disobeyed exactly what God told him in Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4. And it's mentioned, that's referred to here, 1 Kings 11, look at verse 1. But Solomon loved many foreign women, the daughters of Canaan, so to speak, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after other gods. This is mentioned in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. This is what's going to happen. They're going to turn your heart away from God. Yet Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. So if the wisest guy in the world, the smartest guy that ever lived, can be deceived, self-deceived, and then deceived and led astray, we need to put ourselves under the shelter of, the, of, of God himself, and that shelter, that protection, is found in taking heed to his word, doing what he says. Because God knows this is what's going to happen. They will turn your heart away. When a believer begins to descend to the level of the unbeliever to make the marriage work and for things to, things to, go, to uh, live in peace, they be, their hearts begin to be turned away from God. God warns us of that. And so we have these very, very important reasons in the Scripture why a believer should marry an unbeliever. And yet today, I think you see a lot of people questioning that because, of course, the Bible's not relevant, people think, anymore. It's, it's old-fashioned. It does not up to the date, up to the times. Yet the Bible is very clear that God calls us to this, to make a choice according to our identity. And you know what? When you're serving Christ, it's not a problem. When you want to walk in light of your position and your standing in Christ, it's not an issue. And if you go back to 2 Corinthians 6, 
we see that this is part of a bigger picture. Because in verse 17, when he says, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you and I'll father you. And so, God, so here the writer, God, as he inspires the writer of this book, expands this idea of our, our sanctification towards God, how we're to live before God as we set our lives apart to God. He expands it to not, to not only include marriage, but includes all of our lives. He, he brings the bigger picture into view when he talks about our separation, our separation from this world system. Marriage is just one part of that, making the right choice in marriage. It's just one aspect of our separation, and it's part of a bigger pack, package in which God calls us to be different. Now, I met a lot of people who are different, but God isn't calling us to be different. He's calling us to follow him. The result is being different because this world is not walking according to God's playbook, according to God's Bible. They march to a different drumbeat. And when God calls a believer to walk in light of his word, it, you're going to be different. That's the call because that's our sanctification. Except separation in reality is simply our sanctification towards God, and it's the byproduct. When you set yourself apart to God and are willing to walk according to his playbook, we are going to look different, live different, and be different than the rest of the world today. And that's why he tells us here in these three aspects to come out from among them, to be separate, and don't even touch or associate with what is unclean, what, what could pollute our lives. You might ask here, Who's them? Come out from among them. Well, he's writing to Christians in this book, giving them directions, but them obviously is the unbeliever. And it isn't necessarily representing isolation. Instead, it's representing a separation in, their, in our thinking, in our attitude, in our lifestyles, our worldview. It indicates that decision to live according to God's thought, which causes us to live differently than the world. It's we're, believers swims upstream in the culture of the world, do they not? Because we have different directions. That's all separation is. It's a willingness to follow God no matter what occurs in my life. It's really the result of verse 18 here, putting ourselves under the fathering of God. And the problem is many Christians today have lost sight of their identity in Christ. Now they might live a moral and somewhat religious life, but in essence... They often live a life that appeals to their own, own ideals. While they may not violate the major commands of God's word, they may redesign life to be lived according to what they think the Bible intended, they might say, so to speak. And then when they do, this is often the case, they look at believers who refuse to compromise, who refuse to step away from a following Christ mentality, and they look at those kind of believers as legalistic stick-in-the-muds. And often today, you see, you see people criticizing traditional churches and families of believers that just want to sit down together and praise the Lord, worship the Lord, sing songs of the Lord, and learn His Word as, you know, as old-fashioned. One of the tragedies of the megachurches today, which has revolved much around, much around, much emphasis around entertainment and music, is that it's left the older saints behind. I read over and over again about the older saints who simply have a taste for older music, to be set aside. In fact, I saw an article recently with some of the pioneers of the megachurch movement who says, yeah, the old churches, they're stuffy and stodgy and, you know, and uh, when we come in and take help, we come in under the guise of helping a church, we introduce our new methods and means and, you know, we just got to sometimes just got to weed the, old, the, the old, old people away. Not old in age, but the current residents away. No consideration. Because 
A lifestyle of following God's word to a T is considered legalistic. And yet, they fail to realize that having godly biblical standards is not legalism. It's, it's, it's obedience to God, isn't it? And they often ignore what God means in 1 Peter 15 and 1, verses 15 and 16, when he says, But as he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And that's a high calling. To be like Christ, to be holy, be set apart to God in his holiness and his righteousness. That's a high and holy calling. And that's what God calls us, calls us to do because that's our identity. We're his children. We're, we're, we're recreated spiritually in the new birth as in, into the image of Christ. We are indwelt by the, by the spirit of Christ. We're indwelt by Jesus Christ. And that is our identity and that's why separation from the world is simply the result of our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4 talks about our separation in, 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 in the context of sexual immorality when it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And so here we see that that separation is a result of our sanctification. It's the will of God for us to be set apart to him, which is going to mean there's a good thing. There's things in the world that we are going to disclude from our lives. Too often, it's a price people don't want to pay. And another problem we find in this area of separation is believers are sometimes confused because they adopt a mentality that they think in order to reach them, we have to live like them. The Bible never teaches that. We don't have to live like them in order to win them. Because in that reality, God tells his children, let their light shine. And in Ephesians chapter 5, when we do that, the light in us exposes the darkness in others. Just read Ephesians chapter 5. We won't this morning for lack for sake of time. But just read it. And it's, it's blatantly clear that God wants us to not even touch the unfruitful works of darkness. That our light might shine, that others may become convicted of their sinfulness and their need of a Savior. Believers are also confused in the area of liberty. They think they can hide behind the guise of liberty and abuse it for an excuse of the flesh. When in reality, God calls us to live by a higher law, the law of love. A law that prioritizes the spiritual welfare of, welfare of others over, over my selfish claims of liberty. And too often, believers have lost their identity today. They're not distinct today. They're just like the world today in their attitudes and their behaviors and everything they, they involve in their life. They, look, they, look, they sound just like an unbeliever. And sometimes there's something wrong with that picture. God calls us to come out and be separate, and we have to figure out what it is. And we know we have to flee to the arms of Jesus and, and put ourselves under his word, and with God's help and with all honesty and with transparency and with sincerity, we have to be eager that God would show us where we are dishonoring God in our areas of compromise. And that's necessary, that kind of honesty and transparency and eagerness. In fact, if we don't have that kind of honesty and openness before God, then it's like almost don't bother praying about following Jesus. Don't bother singing about how much you love him. Or in, and, and just continue to go on living a, the, in your false reality of a self-designed religion. That might seem brutal, but that's the truth today. God's calling us to be separate today. God's calling us to be like himself today. And it's not that we look for things that we can get rid of so we can claim to be separate. It means that simply that I want to live like the child of God, according to his perfect word, 
and have the attitude of Paul when he mentions in the, in the discussion of liberty, if there's anything in my life, I'm paraphrasing, if there's anything in my life that could possibly hinder my ministry of reaching people for Christ, I won't do it. Well, it is about balance, because it's not isolation. In 1 Corinthians 5, and we won't turn this morning, but Paul writes to them in regards to disciplining a sinning member in the church, and he says this, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly do not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, a believer, who is involved in these things, if I can paraphrase. He's saying, I'm not telling you to be, isolate yourself from, from the ungodly of this world. He says, otherwise you must go to heaven. That's what heaven's going to be. And which means that in our separation, we still will have contact with the ungodly of this world, and we might get a little dirty in our desire to reach them for Christ. So it's not isolation. It is separation in how we live that will shine forth as they see the person of Jesus through us. And that's why it's associated here in 2 Corinthians in this broader picture of separation, of enjoying the fathering of God. To live as his sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And therefore, verse 7 leaves us with this challenge as we consider this this morning. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's a challenge. And this doesn't give us, what I like is the Bible doesn't give us specifics. So that's, you know, so a preacher's not going to stand up and, and drill down on certain attitudes and areas of your life. It simply says you need to, and I need to, before God, perfect holiness in our lives. And that's a separation to which we're called. And that's a separation that Jacob exhibited in his willingness to, to pass by and, and ride, if he rode on a camel, or walk through the, the neighborhoods of all the beautiful women in Canaan to marry a godly woman so that he could support his identity as God's chosen. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful today uh, for this quick lesson, this simple lesson, Father, but an important lesson of how you would have us to follow godly instructions that we might maintain a holy and a godly lifestyle. But it's not something we do legalistically. It's not something we, we choose to look for things to rid ourselves of in our lives, but it's simply a desire to be faithful, to, be, to perfect holiness. And Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom in these things, that you might convict us and that we might be willing to take action. That's what it means to perfect holiness. Take action on the things you convict us of that we might reflect Christ to a lost and dying world. Oh, Father, there are so many people out there who need to know Christ. And Father, in order to reach them, you didn't call us to be like them. You did call us to be with them, but you call us to live separately. It seems confusing, sometimes difficult, but Father, we pray for the grace to do that, to fulfill your will in being a light to those around us. So apply these things now to our lives for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.